I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. In our ongoing series uh, looking at how to find Jesus in the Old Testament, we're usually looking at pictures and types of Christ, but today it's a, it's a little bit different. Today's a little different. We'll get back onto pictures next time, but today we're going to look at Jesus in the Old Testament in a more literal way, like Jesus in the Old Testament. So we're talking about like a Christophany or a theophany that I'll, I will say, I'm going to suggest this, I have reasons to think, is Christ in the Old Testament, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. And if you have questions about how that could be, that would be last week's video uh, or last last time's message. And I'll, I'll put a link in the video description on that for anybody who needs it. Um, some of these passages are more clear than others. And I'm going to kind of showcase that tonight as we go through different passages. I'll be like, this one seems pretty clearly. This is a theophany. God definitely appears here. I'm not sure. We have some clues, but could go either way. So I, I, I just want us to learn the ability to evaluate the text and not overstate our position and kind of have like sort of a conservative approach to how we get our theology. Um, and we don't have to agree on this. And if you guys disagree with me on these things, and hopefully you've learned this by now Sunday night, it's like, I not only am not bothered if you disagree with me, I'm actually interested in hearing why and hearing what your opinion is. Um, this is a healthy thing that we have core issues we hold to and we do, we do agree on these. And then we have a lot of other things we can discuss and go, hmm, I wonder about that and disagree. And it's a healthy, good thing for us. So John 12 is where we're going to begin. This is the first, um, when I, you're like, John 12, this is Jesus in the Old Testament. Yes, but hold on, we'll get there. John is going to give us Jesus in the Old Testament. So we have here the best case for Jesus in the Old Testament because it's New Testament divinely inspired commentary on the Old Testament. So we know this is what God intends for us to get out of the text. So in John 12, 37, it says, though he had done so many signs before them, Jesus had done all these signs, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, here's the quote from Isaiah, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Okay, there's there's a lot going on here, and and because of that, we normally would spend our time going, they couldn't understand. He blinded them. What do we mean by that? Well, I have a whole teaching on uh, how and why God hardens hearts. So we're going to focus instead on this question. Whose glory did Isaiah see based on the commentary of John? Like, who did Isaiah see? Did Isaiah see Jesus? Because that's what's implied with John. It's Jesus does these miracles, and then the word of Isaiah is fulfilled. Who's believed the report, right? Because Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him. This is, this. it seems clear in John 12, the person Isaiah saw is Jesus. So let's look at the passages of Isaiah that are actually quoted. The first one's Isaiah 53, verse 1, and that's, I'll just read it to you. Uh, who has believed what he's heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's Isaiah 53, 1. That's really interesting because that is probably the messianic heart of Isaiah right there. This is the Isaiah passage that deals with the suffering Messiah who will suffer in our place for our sins. I mean, this is like a heavy, the amazing thing about Isaiah 53 is it's like a heavy theological statement about the meaning and the messenger 
not only what he would do, but why he would do it. Like for our sins, you know, by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, um, and the Lord has laid upon him our iniquities. So this is a really deep theological statement. This is like deep New Testament, you know, teaching about how we're saved by Jesus. Yet here it is in Isaiah, <laughs> Isaiah 53. So that's the first one that's quoted. But the next one, and that's what we're going to focus on, is Isaiah 6.10. Because John quoted two times from Isaiah, once from Isaiah 53 and once from Isaiah 6.10. So here's the Isaiah 6.10 quote. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. That's Isaiah 6.10. Okay, so here's the pieces of the puzzle we're so far trying to figure out. Isaiah supposedly saw the glory of Jesus, according to John. John quotes two passages that we could look at to go, did Isaiah see Jesus in one of these passages? Well, there's the suffering Messiah, Isaiah 53 passage, but we don't, we don't have anything about Isaiah seeing glory or seeing God in, or in this passage. Then there's the Isaiah 6 passage, and that's all about Isaiah seeing God. So when did Isaiah have a vision of glory? Well, that's Isaiah 6. So we're now going to read Isaiah 6 with this in mind. Who did Isaiah see? Okay, Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. That would be Yahweh. This is, he saw Yahweh. This is God. Sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So we have, we have two keys here. Isaiah sees God and sees God's glory keep that in mind. And in verse four, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for quote, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts. He's seen God. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand, um, in his hand, a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth. And so an altar is where sacrifices take place. And so the, the burning coals, in my view, would be, this is where the drippings of the sacrifice come down onto the coals, and the coals are burning the sacrifice, so they're connected to the sacrifice. And then he's touched, and you're going to be okay, because this coal has touched your lips. What's interesting is, he's having a vision of God in, in heaven. But the sacrifices took place on earth, right? There's only one sacrifice said to have been offered in heaven, and that was Jesus. And the New Testament tells us he went into the Holy of Holies and offered himself once for all. Just kind of a cool little thing that we see in the text there when we tie all the scriptures together. So he's touched with the coals, with the coal, and he's going to be okay. And uh, verse seven, um, and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. And here's the quote in John. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So there's no other place in the book of Isaiah that's like this. There's no other time in the 66 chapters of Isaiah where Isaiah sees, visually sees God, sees Yahweh, and he sees his glory. The crazy thing is, 
in the, if you were asked this question, who did Isaiah see? You'd be like Yahweh, right? He saw God. But John interprets this passage and says Isaiah saw Jesus. I'm saying that Isaiah 6 is Jesus in the Old Testament. Because if you as a Christian think, well, if it's Yahweh, it's not Jesus, then you don't understand theology. Jesus is Yahweh. That's, that's the biblical teaching on this. And this is what we're getting out of John. So who did Isaiah see? He saw Jesus. He saw Yahweh. So this, I think, could be called a Christophany. And he comes in glory. And this is not some humble manifestation. I mean, that was the cross. That was, this was, in, in his incarnation, Christ came humbly. Here he's just revealing, God's revealing himself to us. It's not coming in a bodily form, in a actual human body that's like a real birthed human body that will die, that's got all of the connection to Adam and genealogy and stuff. No, no, it's, it's something else. Um, sometimes I think we might make it hard to identify Jesus in the Old Testament because we kind of artificially separate Jesus from Yahweh in our heads and because we're just struggling to understand the Trinity, which is, I understand that. <laughs> I understand the struggle to understand the concepts in the, in the doctrine of the Trinity, but there's no reason to separate Jesus from Yahweh. In fact, the Bible does quite the opposite, quite the opposite. Um, so let's look now at uh, Genesis chapter 3. Here's a different one. We're going to survey several of these today, these theophany type passages. Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, we, what's already happened is Adam and Eve have been created. They're in the garden. Eve and Adam, or Eve in particular was tempted, uh, deceived. Adam tempted as well, but chose willingly. They ate of the fruit. And now in Genesis 3 verse 8, we pick up the story and it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because of it, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And then they continue to have a conversation, you know, how did you know? Did you eat of the fruit and all this? And the curse happens and everything. Um, there's three things that, to me, in this passage indicate this is more than just an anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism is like saying, God's hand is outstretched to you. Like, I'm not literally thinking there's this hand that's stretched out to me. There's a scripture that says that heaven is his foot, or earth is his footstool, heaven is his throne. I don't actually think God's resting his feet upon the earth. This is picturesque language. Um, there's there's a, the one that he, the universe is the span, he spans the universe with his hands, spans the heaven with his hands. Like, are we saying that his hand is exactly, you know, billions, this many billions of light years across? Like, is that what we're saying? No, we're not. This is obviously picturesque language, anthropomorphism. We're, we're using human terms to discuss God. That's, that's right. But, but this story in Genesis 3 has characteristics that tells us it really can't be that. It can't be just picturesque language. Let me give you three reasons. One, it says that God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, right? They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This is just too descriptive to merely be, they heard this, that they, you know, and the Lord God came to them. That would be, could be anything, right? But, but this is, he's walking. That's the first reason. The description is too detailed. He's said to be walking in the garden, in the cool of the day. The second thing is this. Adam heard it. That's what we get right in verse 8. And again in verse 10. They heard the sound. And then Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. So we're saying that, that the thing that God was doing, traveling in the garden somehow, it was making an audible noise that they heard, so he had a localized presence of some kind. He was doing an activity that was similar to walking. He was heard. This, this is more. And then Adam, what does he do? 
He hides. He hides. Okay, so this means that God, again, it was a, there was some sort of localized presence of God. And he came in a form that was walking, made noise. Adam hides to avoid him. This is obviously more than anthropomorphism. Something more is going on here. At least that's my opinion. My conclusion is this. God was somehow present in something like a physical human type of form or something that could walk. Um, I would say this is a theophany. We can, we can probably agree this is a theophany here. Now, I would be inclined to say it's a Christophany for reasons I actually shared last time. But basically, Jesus says this. No one's ever seen the Father, but, um, but I've been revealing him. And the, 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 the phrases, it's John 1.18, but the phrasing of it is really interesting because it's, um, it could easily be applied to Jesus on the earth, but it could also be applied past tense, that this is how God's being has been revealed. And this explains the issue of how could no one see God, yet there's these people who say, oh, I've seen God, I'm going to die. Well, Jesus is the answer, I think, to that question. So let's look at another one. So I can't answer all the questions on these, but I think they're interesting. And I think that a non-theophany definite, you know, or interpretation doesn't exactly work with the text. All right, so Genesis 18. This has a really interesting theophany. A lot more details in this one, so uh, a lot more details. And it starts to get... I remember the first time I studied this on my own, I was like, whoa, wait, whoa. It was like, I felt like Sherlock Holmes, you know, the, except like the Bible version. Where <laughs> you're like putting the pieces together and going, this is, this is really, really interesting and neat. Um, at some point in your Christian life, you, you found, maybe, maybe right away, but you found that the Bible uh, is as good as, as you're, you're going to allow it to be. Like as, as much as you'll put into it and study it and, and dig into it, it, it'll all be there. So Genesis 18 verse 1, it says, And the Lord appeared to him. This is Yahweh, right? Yahweh appears and the hymn is Abraham. That's the context. The Lord appeared to him. Remember this, because I'll, I'll mention this later. Who, who is it that appeared to Abraham? Yeah, Yahweh, right? God appears to Abraham. But look at how it describes the appearance. So he appears to Abraham, and we even know where. By the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Already it's very interesting, right? Yahweh appears, Abraham looks, and what does he see? Does it say Yahweh? No, he says three men are standing in front of him. Now, I'm going to say this. One of these men is Yahweh, and the other two are angels, and they're not Yahweh. I don't think this is the Trinity. This isn't Father, Son, Spirit. That would fit really well with Mormon theology, because they see all of them as having physical bodies. Um, but that's not what today's message is about. Um, so, that, But that's not what's happening here. Two of these are angels. One is Yahweh, and, all, and that will become clear as we keep reading the passage. But let me just say this. The word man, you might be stumbled by that. Well, how can you use the word man to describe God, or even angels for that matter? But that's exactly what... The scripture does. You ever read the verse that says that God is a man of war? It doesn't mean he's, his nature is human in that sense. Um, no, it, it's, man is used of humans. It's used of angels. It's used of the angel of the Lord, which we went into last time. So it's a very flexible term. It doesn't just mean not God, a uh, humanoid type person. Now, notice the numbers as we keep reading here, picking up uh, partway through verse 2. Um, notice the numbers, uh, you know, whether he says them or him, they plural or him singular. So it says when he saw them, that's a plural, right? So he saw three, three men. He ran from the tent door to meet them, plural, and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, singular. 
if I have found favor in your sight, singular, your sight, that's that word, check the Hebrew, that's singular, do not pass by your servant, your singular servant. So there's three men here, but he runs to them and he addresses one of them as his Lord and says that he's that person's servant. So we see that one of them is highlighted amongst the three as being special. Verse four, let a little water be brought and wash your feet, that's plural, and rest yourselves, plural, under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, plural, and after that you may pass on since you've come to your servant. So we've got this singular being isolated of the, of the three, but he's going to do something for the th- all three of them, bringing them stuff. One is addressed as Lord, and that's the real focus of Abraham. So to recap, Abraham sees Yahweh. He looks up and sees three men. He runs over to the three, but he addresses one of them as Lord. Implication, one of these is Yahweh. That's So far, that's just what the text would imply. It seems as though they're all in some kind of human-like form. Um, for one thing, they're visible. And for another, he offers them food and water to wash their feet. That obviously is not an anthropomorphism here. It's like He's like, I'll give you food and water to wash your feet. So they seem to be in human form or at least human looking form. And we have good reason to think that they're more than human, not only in this chapter, but in the following chapter. So we're not saying they're reduced to humanity, but they're coming in that, in that appearance. Um, so it's unlike the incarnation because he actually came and was a human. This is in a different sense. So let's keep reading because now we see them talk and I think it's very insightful. Um, So they said, plural they, they speak as a group here, uh, do as you have said, verse six, and Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. I I remember reading this, I was studying for this and Allison was, uh, was nearby and I looked at her and I said, I think this is really funny, babe, because Abraham's like, stay here and I'll make you food. And he runs to his wife and he's like, quick, make some food. (laughs) And I thought that's, yeah, that's pretty much. That's how it is for lots of families, I think. (laughs) I thought it was funny. But he's not done because he's going to have someone else make food too. So verse 7, And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So them, they all get the food and they're all eating, or at least the word they is there, so I'm assuming they're all eating. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. So this could be, um, I mean, it's just interesting, right? This could be, they're, they're speaking like plural. They're all sort of talking together. It was one old Hollywood movie where they, they actually took this scene and they had um, three men and each of the three men, they were all hooded and one would start a sentence and the other one would finish it. And they had the same actor's face on the different guys. I don't think that's probably a fair representation of it because it seems as though one of them stands out as different than the rest based on what he, what we already read. So again, not the, not the Trinity father, son, spirit here, but there's definitely a theophany. All right. Verse 10. Now it changes. Now Yahweh speaks. It's not they anymore. It's just Yahweh. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife shall have a son. So now Yahweh speaks to him. First it was they, now it's just just Yahweh. What was interesting is they go, they say, where's your wife? And then Yahweh says, I will surely return to you. Sarah's listening at the tent door behind him. Um, now, something you should know. The word Lord, the word Yahweh, you, you, it probably says that in your translation. I'm not sure which translation you're using. That is added by the translators. It doesn't say Yahweh in that verse in the actual Hebrew in verse 10. It was added. What it says in the Hebrew is the one 
or one. So one said to him or the one said to him. That's what it says. But it was added for good reason because as we keep reading, we'll find when we get to verse 14 that the one who says this is obviously Yahweh. So just keep that in mind. I just want to give you all the, all the information so you can study the Bible along with me here. Um, verse 11. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah, so she couldn't have a child. She'd already passed that stage of life. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Like, is she going to have a, a, a child, which would be, that would be the pleasure to her. Um, the Lord said to Abraham, now, now in verse 13, this is Yahweh. Yahweh is actually now definitely clearly speaking. It says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for Yahweh, the Lord? And it's interesting when God speaks of himself with that kind of distance that's there. At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. And it's that phrase that tells us that verse 10 is also Yahweh speaking. Because he said, I'll return to you. And then he goes, and he affirms it. Now, now Yahweh speaks, I will return to you. So um, that's why we think verse 10 is, seems like it's definitely speaking of Yahweh. Here, Yahweh speaks about himself in the third person and in the first. Um, I will, and Yahweh, is anything too hard for Yahweh? And then he goes, surely I will return to you. It's just interesting. It's interesting. I wouldn't, I wouldn't build a giant castle out of that idea. I just think it's really neat, you know. I like observing these things. All right, let's keep reading. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. If anybody thinks the three men were there, but Yahweh was speaking to Abraham internally, like there was like an internal voice kind of thing, well, that couldn't be true because what? Sarah overheard it and laughed. Okay, so this is, there's an audible communication going on. They're, they're all hearing it together. Verse 16. Then the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. And you guys know what's happening next. They're going to go down to Sodom and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is going to happen. And Abraham went with them to, see them on their, to set them on their way. And the Lord said, Yahweh said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham sh shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I've chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord, Yahweh, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord, Yahweh, may bring to Abraham what he had promised him. I look forward to one day when we'll just have translations that actually just translate the Hebrew instead of putting the word Lord there. Like, why not? I can't think of a good reason. Except that it's harder to sell them because people are like, freak out. Like, what's that? And they, they just need to be educated on it. And they probably would love it. Um, but it helps us to see that and, and recognize what's happening there. Um, so who's speaking? Yahweh. And then at the end, he suddenly speaks in the third person. That to keep the way of Yahweh by doing righteousness and justice so that Yahweh may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. It's just, it's just interesting. I just find it very interesting. Verse 20, then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood still before Yahweh. Okay, this is, this is interesting. This is where something interesting happens. Because what we, when you we read on, go to chapter 19, just two of them go down to see Lot. Just two of them. Abraham now stands before Yahweh and two of them go down. So Yahweh was definitely one of the three. This is confirmation. One of these three 
so this is definitely theophany. There seems to be no reasonable way to doubt that. Verse 23, then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And then they, they have this whole like conversation where he's like, what if there was 50 righteous or 10 righteous? And they, they kind of, he kind of barters it down. Um, and he's interceding for Sodom. And then at the end of the chapter, verse 32, uh, the last part of verse 32, he says, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. And again, in Genesis 19, we'll read the first couple of verses there just to give us the context. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. So these men were angels, but the third of them was Yahweh. That, that's what seems to be very, very clear. Then in uh, Genesis 19.24, adding another interesting thing into the text, it has this, think of the grammar of this, right? He says, then Yahweh rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from Yahweh out of heaven. That's interesting, isn't it? Yahweh rained down sulfur and fire from Yahweh out of heaven. And we, we read in the earlier chapter, Yahweh had come down and was there. I mean, it may be that, that he stayed in that theophany state during the whole events of what was going on with Sodom and Gomorrah as the two angels went. Perhaps he was staying there. And then when he, when they left, then the fire, maybe that, that, that is a possibility. So I think that is a very interesting, very interesting uh, passage. And there's one more I'll add to, to this mix. Uh, and that's Amos chapter 4, verse 11. This is specifically about the events we just read. So turn there if you would. Amos 4.11, if you'd like to. I'll just read it to you. Um, so what we have, we have is we have definitely a theophany type thing. But here's why I think Christophany. Because this Yahweh who's speaking to Abraham, he speaks also of Yahweh in the third person. And then when the events finally take place of the, of the fire and brimstone, Yahweh rains down fire and brimstone from Yahweh out of heaven. Almost as though we've got two different persons going on in the story. Amos 4.11, Amos 4.11 says, um, I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, as you were, uh, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord, Yahweh. Here's another statement about the Sodom and Gomorrah event where God, again, Yahweh seems to distance himself from himself, you know, as far as phraseology. I'll read it again. I, God speaking, I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares Yahweh. Very interesting. How multiple different passages kind of preserve the same thing. It's just, in other words, it doesn't seem coincidental. It seems intentional when you have it happening multiple times, um, even in a different book of the Bible. Okay, so turn to Genesis 32, and we're going to look at Jacob, Jacob the night before meeting Esau. This is the passage where Jacob's wrestling with a man, and there's this difficult stuff going on. Um, so Genesis 32, verse 24. Jacob, uh, just to bring you up to speed, he, he's going to send all of his, his goods and his cattle and his servants and even his family are going to go ahead of him, and, and he's offering them to Esau. You can have all this stuff. He's just trying to build a bridge because the last time he saw Esau, try saying that five times fast. He saw Esau. Uh, the last time that happened, uh, Esau was going to try to kill him. And so he thinks this is still going to happen. So Genesis 32, 24, it says, And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. 
When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, which which means um, to see God. And so he says, for I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been delivered. So who did Jacob think he saw? God. He thought he saw God. Yet he wrestled with this man. And when the person he's wrestling with describes the event, he says, you've wrestled with man and with God. And if you're thinking, um, well, wrestle with man. So he, that was a man. And so symbolically, he was re- wrestling with God, but this man wasn't really somehow a theophany. I, I, think, I think that's mistaken because the man Jacob wrestled with is at the beginning of Jacob's life. Anybody know who that was? That was Esau. Remember that? They're in the womb. And he grabs him. He's named heel catcher because of grabbing him. That was the first one he wrestled with. And then he defeated Esau. He, he got the birthright and he got the blessing. And he goes, and now you've wrestled with God. So you wrestled with man and you wrestled with God and prevailed. The thing with God is he couldn't actually beat God. He just wouldn't let go. And I think that's really interesting. <laughs> I can't defeat God, but I ain't going to let go. I think that's a nice attitude to have. So the two points I would draw from this passage are, one, he says, I've seen God face to face, yet my life is delivered. And this is interesting, again, because the problem is if you see God, you die. That seems to be the consistent teaching. You see God, you die. Yet how are people seeing God not dying? Well, yet we see Jesus. He becomes the safe way for us to see God. Um, He's always been the solution. And then number two, the second point is he's striven with God and men. And, of course, the the, the man was Esau and God was, of course, this event. Um, So Hosea 12, verses 3 and 4 supports this. Let me read it to you. It says, In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. You see, when he was a baby, he struggled with his brother. When he was an adult, he he struggled with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. That's Hosea 12, verses 3 and 4. It seems to really reinforce the idea that this is, he's wrestling with God. Now, if you were a Jewish person, who rejected the Messiah, rejects Jesus, I think you'd have a struggle, your own struggle with God, trying to explain this passage. But I think that when you realize that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that he is, you know, his goings forth are from everlasting, that he he is being revealed throughout the scriptures, it just makes total sense. It just makes total sense. Jesus has always been the answer to so many of the hanging questions of the Old Testament. So that's what I love about getting these, going to the Old Testament and finding these, these difficult places and hard passages because so often it's pointing right to Christ. All right, let's, let's do another. Joshua chapter 5. This is when they're entering the promised land. Some of you guys were asking about this uh, last time. Um, they're entering the promised land. They're just crossing over the, um, uh, the River Jordan and the first city they come to is what? Jericho. Yes, they come to Jericho. So we're we're there in in Joshua 5, entering the promised land. And remember 
Um, when God had said, we, we went over this last time as well, I will send my angel before you. You better do what he says. And it was the angel of the Lord that would go before them. Well, let's read on. Joshua 5.13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his sword, uh, with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? Now, this is understandable, right? Because Joshua is coming with not only the people of Israel, but he's now coming with the army of Israel. And why are they in the promised land? They've come to drive people out and to take over the land. This is, this is it. And so we see, he sees someone come with a sword and he's like, all right, this might be the first encounter, you know, this might be it. Like, are you for us or against us? And I love the answer in verse 14. And he said, no. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You know, so many people, they put crosses on their shields or they, they, in the name of God, they have, I'll tell you right now, if there's a war in the world, there's a chaplain blessing each side, right? Different chaplains coming up and blessing the troops of each side as if everyone's cause is just, as if God's on everybody's side. And I like this answer here. He just says, no, no. This doesn't mean that every war is unjust either. It just means, no, God has his own agendas and he doesn't necessarily come in line with yours. You need to come in line with his. You need to follow him. So he says, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord now I have come as though he was expected. I'm here. Now I've come. And Joshua fell on his face. That must have hurt. No, obviously this is, this is a picture language. He bows down, gets on his face and worshiped and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? So he just completely yields. And how does he know so quickly to yield? Because he says, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. He's Yahweh's army commander, I'm going to bow before you. And he worships. And then what what does he say? The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. Does that sound familiar to you? Remember the last time that happened? Yeah, it was was at the burning bush. Well, this is interesting, right? In the burning bush, that was the angel of the Lord in the bush, but Yahweh spoke from the bush. And Moses comes near and he's told to take his sandals off. And now we have now, now, not Moses, Joshua, the new generation. He meets the angel of the Lord. He bows, he worships, and he's told, take your sandals off. This is holy ground. The commander of the Lord's army, it says. The commander of the Lord's army. Um, the Lord's army here would, would potentially be the Israelites, or it could also be, um, speaking of angels, um, the Israelites are actually called the army of God in other places in scripture. So it could be talking about them. He's like, Joshua, you think you're in charge? I'm in charge. That may have been the point. Um, but here's a couple points. One, Joshua worshipped this guy. A lot of people will try to get away from seeing a theophany here or a Christophany here. Um, and they'll say, it's, it's okay to worship God's messengers because the messenger represents God. But that's not true, is it? Because in scripture, this is specifically refuted multiple times. We have human messengers that, that people try to worship, right? Peter says, get up. We're just men like you. Stop that. Right? Don't worship us. Stop that. So then we also have in Revelation 19.10, an angelic messenger, and John falls to worship this angelic messenger. And he doesn't go, it's okay because I represent Yahweh. No. It says, then I fell, Revelation 19.10, then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So he's told, don't do this. You can't do this. So I, I think it's, it's um, wrong 
to say that the worship is insignificant here. This being comes, represents not only the Lord, he's commanded the Lord to us, but he's receiving worship. And he says, similar to what was said to Moses, take off your, um, your shoes because, in fact, that's the response. He goes to worship and they, this, this individual, <laughs> this, the, um, the commander of the armies of the Lord of hosts, he says to him, instead of get up, stop worshiping, he goes, yeah, while you're at it, take your shoes off because this is holy ground. I mean, he just, he, in other words, incentivizes him even more to do it. Question, why is the ground holy? How come when angels come in the Bible, we don't have them telling people to take their shoes off? The only example I have is when God shows up. Because God's holy. Interesting. Exodus 3, 5, last time this happened, it says, do not come near here. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Why? Because God's presence was there. Um, now, as you continue reading in uh, Joshua chapter 5, um, there's, I think, an unnecessary chapter break. If you read on to chapter 6, it, there's a chapter break there, and so you feel like it's ending the story. But remember, what just happened was like an introduction. It wasn't the whole story, right? I see this guy. I bow down. I worship. He says, take your sandals off. And he introduced himself as who? The commander of the army of the Lord. And guess what he has? Commands. So that's what we read in Joshua 6, chapter 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua... Now, if that had been uh, apart from the story of the commander, then I would not, I would have just assumed God was somehow speaking to him. But because it happens right as Joshua is meeting this guy, bowing down, and then getting, he's going to get instructions. That's the idea. I've come to tell you what to do. And the Lord, Yahweh, said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city. All the men of war going around the city once. Then you, thus you shall do for six days. And he continues to give him all the instructions. Um, in the context, I think Yahweh is the same as the commander of the army of Yahweh. And here's why. Because in verse 13, it's introduced by Joshua was by Jericho. He's on his way to Jericho. He's almost there. And in chapter 6, verse 1, where is he? He's still there right in front of Jericho getting instructions on what to do. Um, he's about to command them. He's, the, he's there to command them. And then in chapter 6, that's where the commands come. So who's speaking here? It seems to me that it's Yahweh who's speaking and Yahweh who is standing before. And Joshua submits and he asks the commander for instructions. Uh, what does my Lord say to his servant? Remember, he said that at the end of chapter five. What does my Lord say to his servant? And the next person to speak in the story is, and Yahweh said to Joshua, go do this. So I think we have good reason to think that that's the case. Um, and let's not forget, again, Exodus 23 where God says to his people, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. That's the promised land. That's what they're doing right now. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. So these are, to me, these are lots of threads all coming together, and the thing that makes the most sense is a Christophany, I think. Um, so... You might go, Mike, okay, fine, they're the same. But why is this stuff so complicated? Um, and because sometimes it is. Some of this stuff is complicated. We're weaving multiple threads from different books of the Bible all together. And I think that there's something that we, want, we should learn called um, explanatory scope. You guys, raise your hand if you've heard that term, explanatory scope. So there's an explanatory power. That's how well an explanation 
solves a problem. Explanatory scope is basically how many problems it solves. Like how many problems it solves. That's that's the explanatory scope. So like if you came in and this, this room is a total mess and it's got all these weird decorations up as it does now because we have our uh, vacation Bible school coming. And what if I was to give you an explanation for, for this right here? I, and the explanation was, well, Kirk was here earlier and he really likes seashells and, and, and ocean themes. And so I think he decorated this area. And then I go, and there's a shark hanging from the ceiling over there. And that's because Rick really likes you know sea creatures and he likes scuba diving and he likes sharks. So he put the shark. And I start giving you different explanations for every piece of artwork that's up in the room. After a while, you'd be like, maybe all those expl- explanations work. They have explanatory power, but they don't have explanatory scope. Then I give you the one that has scope, and I go, VBS, right? We have Vacation Bible School, one explanation that explains all of these issues all at the same time. That's explanatory scope. So you see how that's really important. When you have a bunch of issues and you have one solution that fixes all those problems, you go, okay, there's a lot of truth to that then. Jesus has explanatory scope. He explains so many of the problems that we see and issues we see throughout the Old Testament. It's as though the Old Testament asks the questions and Jesus provides the answer. It's, it's laying the trail and we're here like CSI gathering the data, getting it all together and going, yes, okay, this is Jesus. This is what we're seeing. It's Christ. It's Christ. Um, they did this with the, with the planets and the movements of the stars and they tried to come up with all these different theories for how the, why is the retrograde motion of planets in the sky and stars moving the way they do. And then finally, when they thought, well, maybe it's just gravity. Like, and they had one explanation that kind of dealt with all of it that was well accepted, right? And it's the same thing here. Jesus answers so much. All right, let's look at, let me see how much, how much do I have here? Okay, not too much more. A little bit more. We'll look at another example. This is about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And here's a story where I'm going to tell you I don't know for sure, but I think it's interesting and I think it's worth looking at as we look at this. So Daniel chapter three, uh, we know the story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, uh, they're told that they cannot worship, you know, and they have to worship and bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. They can't worship God. And so they refuse, and now they're going to get the death penalty. So we pick up in verse 19 of Daniel 3. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed. And sh- against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. I think this is funny because this is sometimes what, what, what like big heady leaders do. Like you, because you know the people who actually run the furnace are like you can't technically heat it seven times, <laughs> but that's what the order goes out. He's like, just make it happen seven times, and whatever you say, boss. So they just throw a bunch of fuel in there. I doubt they actually heated it seven times. What it was <laughs> heated anyway. I think it's funny. Some leaders are like that. Um, so uh, verse twenty, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then. These men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, how horrific this event must have been. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And rose up in haste, and he declared to his counselors, did, not we, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king, because you don't, you don't want to say any more words than you have to when he's this angry. <laughs> 
Yep. <laughs> like, <laughs> whatever you say, boss. And he answered and said, but I see four men, four unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And I'll pause for a second here, because if you have New King James, you're like, no, it says like the son of God. The more accurate translation is a son of the gods. I'll explain it in a minute, um, but that's just the reality of it. They, the translators felt that this was like Christ, and so they, I think, bent the translation, in, in at least in the New King James Version, a little bit um, without justification. But verse 26, Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. So let's look at that phrase, because what we really want to highlight, we're not looking at the whole story. We just There's four men instead of three, and one of them has a, a different appearance than normal people. He looks like a, quote, son of the gods, like a, a son of the gods. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, was he a Christian? No. Was he a Jew? No, right? He's a pagan king who literally just built a big statue and told everyone they had to worship him, right? This is not, he's not a godly man. He has all sorts of weird beliefs in his head. What, what, when he describes like a son of the gods, it doesn't mean it was like, this is like Hercules, right? It's like, Hercules, yeah, you made it in the fire. No, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is he sees a being that looks like a divine being, looks like a supernatural, something more than human. That's what he sees in the fire. That's all we really get out of his statement, like a son of the gods. Um, that's all we really get out of that. So that's why he says like. I don't know what that thing is, but in my head, in my, with my pagan worldview, this looks like a son of the gods. So, who could this be? Like, well, in the text, what information do we have? Like, it, it could be an angel. It's more than a man. I think that's clear. It could be an angel. Or it could be an actual theophany. It could be, could be a Christophany. And I don't actually have a clear way of telling. I don't even have a strong push towards one way or the other, in my opinion. I, it could really easily be either one. So I'm inclined to lean towards it being a Christophany personally, but that is because of this. See, if I start with the Old Testament, I just look at this passage, I would not see a Christophany there. But if I take the whole counsel of God's word and I see Jesus and I see Jesus coming in other forms, Isaiah saw his glory and I see all this kind of stuff, then I feel like I have good reason to kind of lean automatically towards a Christophany because that's just the way God seems to be doing things. And this is, this is where I want to bring out an important point. Um, when we're doing this Jesus in the Old Testament study, this is a study in theology, right? This is, there's a lot of threads. There's actually evidence for the Bible. There's internal consistency and things like that. There's the idea that there's a, a meta-narrative, a big, a big story that's written in the text of Scripture that the authors themselves couldn't have designed, right? God designed this. There's all that. But we do this as Christians with the knowledge of Christ. We're now looking at the Old Testament to rediscover what God has already placed in it. That's the idea. Does that make sense? And this, because I'm doing this with the theology of Christ already secured in my mind, I'm able to um, allow the New Testament to guide me in my understanding of the old. To allow the fullness of the scriptures to guide me in how I interpret it. So I think this is absolutely fine. Um, This is not evidence for the Bible from fulfilled prophecy. That's a very different kind of thing. This is rather just evidence for inspiration, but it really is um, an exercise you can only do with Christ already established theologically in your head. Like you already have to know who Jesus is to be able to do this thing. And that's one of the, one of the principles we'll get at. When you're going to Jesus in the Old Testament, I think it's totally safe 
to allow the scriptures to inform us of the way in which God communicates about Jesus. He's the overarching theme of the Bible. And the Bible itself seems to reveal that Jesus is in here a lot more than what was obvious to the original readers. So I have biblical reasons for seeing Jesus in a passage like this one. Um, okay, there's, there's, there's other passages I'd like to cover, but I think we're done as far as time goes. And what I want to do is announce what we're doing next week. So next week, we're going to get into Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is a very controversial and difficult figure. A lot of people think he's a Christophany. Personally, I don't think so. And I'm going to explain why. And if you think he is, that's fine. I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on that as well. But I think Melchizedek gives us, and I hope people can grab what I'm trying to teach here, gives us ways of approaching the Old Testament so that what we learn from Melchizedek, we can apply to other passages. You see, because we're not just learning, here's Jesus here, here's Jesus here. We're actually learning, here's how to find Jesus in other places as well. We're getting a set of tools that we can use to uncover uh, evidence for Christ throughout the Old Testament. All right, let's pray. Um, Father God, we pray for wisdom as we approach your word, for humility. Um, We don't want to be using our imaginations to find stuff, but yet in all sorts of ways with with not only prophecy and stories and lives and names and also with um, sort of just this style of how you've written Christ into the scriptures, we just pray for insight and understanding that we might appreciate the fullness of the word of God. We want to be like those, those guys on the road to Emmaus, having our hearts burn within us as you open the scriptures to us to teach us the things about yourself that we find in these pages. In Jesus' name.